you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Job chapter 2? Job chapter 2. If you're just jumping in, Job is the book right before Psalms, so you can kind of break your Bible open right in the middle and maybe turn to the left just a little bit, and you'll be right there in the middle of Job. And so we're in the story of the, we're looking at the big story and how Christ is at the center and the fulfillment of all of Scripture. And we're seeing that now through the final of the wisdom books that we're going to be looking at, the book of Job. So this morning is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be looking at Job's friends. And we see Job's friends really in these three different cycles of dialogue that happen throughout the book, but time simply won't allow us to carry to cover about 36 chapters of that uh, this morning. And so we're going to look at in pieces. We're going to start with an introduction, and then I'll read some more as the morning carries on. So Job chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, it says this. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, you have called each of us to be ministered to, by the Spirit and to minister to others through the Spirit, that, Lord, we might embody Christ to those that we encounter. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that you would strengthen us as ministers of the Gospels, as co-laborers, as those who are the hands and feet of Christ to the people that are wounded and hurting. I pray this morning that you would bind the wounds of someone who's in our midst that's hurting That, God, you would minister to them in a way that is unique. That, Father, you would allow them to experience grace and forgiveness, perhaps toward those who had good intentions but afflicted them further. I pray that, Lord, you would use us as a mobilized body of your kindness and your mercy and your grace to our community. I pray, Father, that this morning you would allow us to have a deeper sense of security of who we are in Christ, that we might love those who are apart from Christ or suffering even with Christ today. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had somebody that tried to help you but only made the situation worse? If you haven't experienced this phenomenon... Let me recommend back surgery to you, okay? Because let me tell you how it's going to go if you have back surgery. I, I was in, so this is kind of emblematic of a number of conversations that I had. But as, as many of you know, a few years ago, I woke up in the middle of the, I woke up one morning and I just couldn't sit up in the bed, okay? I'd been playing golf the week before. I'd been kayaking the week before. I wake up, can't sit up in the bed. Turns out, need reconstructive surgery. It was a whole big thing, you know? All right. The timeline for me was pretty accelerated due to some kind of particular uh, risks that I, was, uh, that I was susceptible to as a result of where the issue in my back was. But I remember that in that two-week in-between time from when I found out I was going to have to have surgery and I, was, and I ultimately had surgery, I had a lot of people that had a lot of advice, right, as you might can imagine. Now, I want to frame all of this up, as, first of all, saying I believe that every bit of the advice was well-intentioned. I believe that all of it was very loving. But a lot of it, a lot of it didn't help very much. 
And I remember I was in, uh, I went to RMC back, you know, pre-COVID when we could actually go and pray with people before they had surgery at the hospital. And I, I remember I was sitting in the, in the waiting room there and I was praying with someone that was having surgery and we were talking about my upcoming surgery. Well, there was a guy that was there in the waiting room and I didn't know him from Adam, but he overheard me talking about this back surgery and he felt it, that it was his job, it was incumbent upon him to speak some truth into my life. And let me tell you what he said. Now, you know you ain't never going to be the same again, don't you? You know that, don't you? you? You know, you know, you never have just one back surgery. You know that, don't you? Don't let them cut on you, son. Don't let them cut on you. Now, that was a blessing in my life. That was a blessing in my life. Now, first of all, he didn't know that my, I was susceptible to something called cauda equina syndrome, which basically means that because of where the issue was in my back, I could like lose control of bladder bowels, like permanently couldn't be fixed. And so like I had to have surgery. So like not having surgery was not an option on the table. But to have someone sit there and say, now you got to make sure you understand, son, you're never going to be the same. You're not going to fully recover. You're not going to be okay. And at the time, I'm 32. You know what I'm saying? I'm 32. And so... He took like what was a low-grade stress and accelerated it to about 100. Do you know what I'm saying? That is, he took something that I was worried about, and he made me worry about it more. He, he took something that was, he took what was a hard time in my life, and he made it harder. He was trying to help me. He was trying to give me advice. He was sure, I'm sure it was based upon his own experience or the experience that he's had with someone that's close to him. But the truth of the matter was, in that moment, he was not a very good friend, was he? In that moment, he was not a very good friend. In that moment, rather than being the kind of friend that stepped in and, and made me feel better about a hard situation or comforted me in the middle of what was uh, a difficult process or, or making me feel more at ease about something that I was already anxious and nervous about, he compounded my suffering and he made my situation all the worse. You know, the truth is, I think most of us have experienced that in some part, point or another. And the truth is, is probably a lot of us have contributed to that at one time or another. That's certainly the case for Job. As we meet Job's friends, and as we're going to see as the morning unfolds, Job has friends, and, and they're well-intentioned, and they mean to, to do him good, but they ultimately bring harm into Job's life, and they compound the suffering that Job experiences it. And so what I want us to look this morning is I want us to see what a bad friend looks like, that we might not be them. I want us to see a bad friend, what a bad friend looks like, so that we might ultimately see the picture of Christ highlighted for us and what a glorious and good friend, the friend that sticks closer than a brother is to us. I want us to see what a bad friend looks like so that maybe it would cause us to slow down and pause and to have a, a deeper appreciation and understanding of the sovereign, mysterious ways of God that far transcend our understanding, our experiences are our ways. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that bad friends speak too soon. Bad friends speak too soon. Now, us, where Job is from, must have been a small town because news about Job's situation and suffering, it spreads like the mayor has gotten too close to the secretary. And so we know that at least by the geographical designations of the friends, that at least one of them were more than 100 miles away. And yet news of Job's suffering has went out as far as 100 miles. Well, these friends, they, they care about Job, and they love Job, and they want to minister to Job. And so they come together, and they decide that they're going to set an appointment that they can go and be there with 
Job. Now, we get some, some picture of what their, uh, what their motive was by what, they, what it says there. It says that they come together, that they, uh, they made an appointment to come together to come and show him sympathy and to comfort him. Now, I want you to realize that for these men, this was better than the experiences that many of us have had. They respond better than the way many of us would respond. They travel miles and miles. They have to uproot their life. And by the way, they can't jump on Amtrak or get an Uber. I mean, they're walking. They're riding camels across the land here. They come at great expense to themselves. They come, they leave behind their lives and their livelihoods that they can come to Job. And the reason that they do it all is that they want to show him sympathy and to comfort him. So what we see about Job's friends right out of the gate, and the Bible is clear about this, is that they have good intentions. These were people that had good intentions. They wanted to be there for Job. They wanted to love Job. They wanted to comfort Job. They wanted to make sure that Job wasn't in the dark knot of the soul completely by himself. And so it says there that they went and they sat with him for seven days and seven nights. And they did not even, no one even spoke a word to him. That they're there and they're with Job. And you can imagine you have four men, three friends, and the suffering Job who is covered in sores from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And the only sounds that you hear is the sounds of weeping, the sounds of wailing, the, the sounds of, of men trying to catch their breath as they pray for their suffering friend, as they sit there with him. That's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. There is no ministry to, su- to a sufferer more powerful than that of silent, present compassion. There's no, there's no ministry more powerful than that. See, suffering, it isolates us. Suffering, it makes us feel alone, doesn't it? S- suffering reconfigures the future so that the future only looks bleak and only looks bad and only looks negative. It causes us to feel as though we are cut off from the goodness of God and cut off from the blessings of God and cut off from all of those normal people who aren't experiencing what we're experiencing and going through what we're going through. And so if you have a friend who will come and he'll just step right into the middle of that, if you have a friend and she'll, she'll come and she'll just sit with you, silent but present there in the midst of your pain, it somehow begins to alleviate that sense of isolation, doesn't it? It's a reminder that you may feel alone, but you're not alone. It's a reminder that you may have a difficult future to face, but you don't face that future all by yourself. Reminds me of a friend, a close friend of mine. He and I were, were talking a few weeks ago, and he's went through one of these dark nights of the soul. Hardest time in his life. He's lost so many things that he cares about and feels like his whole life has been flipped upside down. And person after person after person who has proclaimed love for him and care for him has stepped into his life to give him plenty of advice, to tell him how he can get it all back, to tell him how his situation can be fixed, to tell him how his situation can be remedied. And he said, Cody, every single one of them, I just wanted to say, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm thinking. You don't know what it's like. You don't get it. He said, but there was one man. There was one man. He called me. He said, would it be okay if I stopped by? 
And he said the man stops by and he's expecting it's going to be just like the experiences that he's had with all of the other friends who have had all the other advice and all the other counsel and all the other ways and everything can just be made right again. And he says the friend gets there and they go and they, they sit on the back porch and they sit and my buddy said, I, I just looked at him and I, what do you have? And he said, this is it. This is it. God told me just to come and sit on the back porch with you and be quiet. And my friend said that out of all the people that have had ideas and all the people that have had solutions and all the people that have called me up and all the text messages that I've received, it was in that man that I saw Christ. It was in that man that I found comfort. It was in that man that I had the hope that I did not have to face this by myself. That stands in contrast to the ministry that many of us experience. That stands in contrast to the experience that many of us have had and the, the contributions that many of us give to others. But I want you to think about this. If the book of Job would have stopped after chapter 2, and this was all that you knew about the friends of Job, that they came and they did not speak a word, but they were, traveled great distance just to sit with him in silence and cry beside him, they would, we would go away and there would be no clear evidence of good friendship in all the scriptures apart from Christ himself. But they had to speak. They had to talk. If you read Job chapter 3, Job chapter 3 is a lament from Job. And Job essentially says that my worst nightmares have become my reality. The deepest fears that I had in my life have now become the only thing that I actually know seems to be the truth. And Eliphaz, speaking on behalf of the other two, Eliphaz seems to be the, the leader of the three friends of Job, the, the man that would appear to be the eldest and the wisest and even the gentlest. He hears the lament of Job and sees the suffering of Job. And after seven days, he decides, I can't still be silent. I must speak. But even though he waited seven days, what we learn from listening to Eliphaz and what we understand, what, because we have the context of the narration, is that Eliphaz, though he waited seven days, still spoke too soon. Listen to what he says. He says, then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you, Job, have instructed many, and you, Job, have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. It seems like he's starting good enough, but listen to what he says. But now that it has come to you, you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Do you hear what he says? He says, Job, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Here's Job in the dark night of his soul needing someone to care for him and minister to him and his friends who have come to show him sympathy and comfort him, confront him instead and call him a hypocrite to his face. They compound his suffering. They make Job's life harder and not better. Further than that, they call for his repentance. That's what's meant in verse 6 there when it says, Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your way your hope? You remember this word integrity when, when Job's wife tells him to forsake your integrity, renounce God and die? In other words, the issue from the start has been whether or not Job is a man of integrity. If this suffering has come into Job's life because of some great sin in his life. And we, we who have read what the narrator has said, we who have a view that is privy over that of Job, over that of Job's friends, we know 
there is nothing in Job's life of which he needs to repent. We know there is nothing in Job's life that is a compromise of his integrity. We know that there is nothing in Job's life that he has done that has brought on this suffering except for his faithfulness unto the Lord himself. But his friends, they thought they knew. His friends, they thought they knew. And so they come to Job and they call for his repentance. And by calling for his repentance, they alienate him. Imagine the sores on Job's skull all the way down to his feet. And here are his friends and they're pouring salt in all of the boils on his skin. Here's Job in his suffering thinking that he's found someone that will help him not feel so isolated. But he feels more isolated instead. Here's Job feeling as though he's completely misunderstood and embarrassed. And you have to understand the, the, the dynamic of an honor-shame culture where everybody assumes that if you have suffering in your life, it's because of sin in your life, the public humiliation. He's lost his reputation. And, and here are his friends. And they don't deny it. They, they agree with it. And they compound it. They make Job's life harder, not easier. Tougher, not better. Seems to completely change the view of, that, we, that the scriptures give us of the Lord, doesn't it? The Lord point, paints a different picture of himself. That psalm that I read to start the service from Psalm 147, listen to verse 3. It says, he, the Lord, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That we live in a world that is filled with counselors and well-meaning people that come in. And rather than comforting us, they salt our wounds. But the Lord, the Lord is different than that. See, the Lord is not like a well-intentioned friend. Job's friends teach us that you can have good intentions and still be a bad friend. You can have good intentions and still be a bad friend. But the Lord, the Lord draws near to those who are suffering. The Lord draws near to those who are covered in boils and he comes and he binds the wounds and he shows them kindness. That is, we're catching a glimpse here of Christ. How did Jesus minister to his church? How did Jesus help his church? How did Jesus come and overcome the suffering of his church and defeat the death of his church like we just sang about? He did it through the incarnation, by being present with his church, by being there, by being there where his people were being tempted, by being there where his people were being wounded, by being there where his people were being oppressed, by being there where his people were being taught poorly, by being there, by joining us in the suffering, in the mess, in all of the stuff. And so if you want to have a ministry like Jesus, you've got to be present like Jesus. If you want to have a ministry like Jesus, you have to be present like Jesus. That is, just be there, man. Just be there. You know, you may forget the people who send you a text message. And you may forget the people that write you a card. And you may forget the people that say, I'm sorry. But you never forget the people who are there. You never forget the people who sit there with you while you cry. You never forget the people that you feel comfortable with to just let yourself go and ask questions. Who in your life needs you just to be there? Who in your life needs you to come and pull up a rocking chair on the back porch and say, I've got nothing to say. I've got no advice. I've got no wisdom. I just want to sit with you for a while. I just want to hug you. I just want to love you. I just want to show you that powerful, compassionate, 
presence of Christ. Job's friends, they talk too soon. Are we talking too soon? But bad friends don't just talk too soon. Bad friends know too confidently. Bad friends know too confidently. Listen to how it continues on. It says, remember, this is picking up right from where we read there at the end of Job chapter 4. This is still Eliphaz, Job's friend, responding to Job. He says, remember, who is that was innocent ever perished? Or there was the upright cut off. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish. And by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The truth is, is we can empathize with Job's friends because we've all been there. We've all been there. They didn't know that Job had done nothing wrong. They didn't know what the, his experiences had been. They didn't know and had brought on this great calamity in his life. And we don't know either. In fact, what they have is the same thing that all of us have. You know what they had? They had what they had been taught. And they had what they had been experienced. They had experienced. You can see what they've been taught. They've been taught that those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. This is the, the retribution principle that we talked about last week, right? That, that if you do all the right things in all the right ways with all the right motives, that you're going to reap all the right results. That if you sow good, you're going to reap good. So the inverse of that is that if you sow poorly, you're going to reap poorly. If you do all the wrong things with all the wrong motives and all the wrong ways, that you're going to reap all the wrong harvest in your life. And this seems to be what Proverbs teaches, right? Because Proverbs is teaching us how things generally go. How, how God has organized and, and ordered this world. And by learning this order, how we can flourish. And the truth is, this is how life normally works, isn't it? That's why it leads to what they said. It says there in verse 8, the very beginning, as I have seen. That is, here's what they know and here's what they've experienced. Well, if this is how God has ordered the world and the world normally operates according to Proverbs, this is going to be the majority experience. And this is typically what your experience is going to be. So what we see is that they take their experience and they take what they know and it forms what I would call a theological framework. I misspelled it there. Forgive me. A theological framework. That is that we take what we know and we take what we've experienced and that becomes the lens through which we understand the world. That becomes the lens through which we interpret our circumstances. That becomes the lens through which we interpret the circumstances of our friends. That becomes how we process suffering and what we do with suffering. It becomes how we process success and what we do with success. That all of us have what we've been taught and we have what our experiences have been. And the only thing that we know to do is to process all of life through that framework, through that lens. Now, what's the problem with this? The problem with this for Job is the same problem that it is for us. I don't know everything and I haven't experienced everything. I don't know everything and I haven't experienced everything, everything. So some theological frameworks are much sounder than other theological frameworks. Some ways of seeing the world are much more accurate than other ways of seeing the world. But none of them are perfect. None of them are ideal. None of them are without flaw. None of them are without question. So when you become overconfident in your framework, 
When you become overconfident in your understanding and the way that you process the world and the way that you process suffering and the way that you understand God and the way that you understand sinners and the way that Christ works in the lives of sinners, if you become overconfident, then I can assure you that you are well on your way to being a miserable minister to a person in need. I can promise you that if you begin to believe that your experience is the starting place for everybody else's experience, then you are on the way of being the kind of person that wants to help but ends up hurting. That's exactly what happens with Job's friends. And and Job, he points this out. He points this out in a way that I think is is really powerful and really uh, really insightful. He does this. You'll see this in Job chapter 6. So you have Eliphaz's response is really Job chapter 4, Job chapter 5. And then Job responds to Eliphaz there in chapter 6. And he says this, For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. That's a big one. All right? I'm going to draw some arrows there. Do you hear what he says? Job's friends had a theology that lacked mystery. In other words, their theology was so not, so tight, so neat, so tidy, that they knew exactly what they were looking at as soon as they looked at it, and there was no question in their mind. There was no place in there for the mystery of God to invade. There was no place in there for the complexity of human experience. There was no place in there for there to be something that operated outside of their framework, outside of how they understood and saw the world, outside of this so good, reap good, so bad, reap bad. And Job insightfully says that the reason that their theology is so tight is because they are insecure men. See, insecure men need to have all the answers. Insecure people, they need to know the answer to every mystery. Insecure people, they have to know the why behind everything. Because the fear, the fear that he's talking about, that his friends would have, is that if the system, if, if, if God doesn't operate strictly on this retribution principle of, of so good, reap good, so bad, reap bad, then that means that their future is not in their hands. They don't control by their behavior. And they don't control by their actions. And they don't control by their experiences. And they don't control by their knowledge. Instead, they have to seek control of their lives. Instead, they have to acknowledge that there might be one who is far greater than them. That is beyond the comprehension of their mind. That their circumstances might be beyond their control and their ability to fix and their ability to make rights. These were insecure men that had to have a theology without mystery. And wherever there is theology without mystery, church... There is ministry without mercy. The insecure men who, care, who try to help and minister to others always end, end up afflicting them further. Always end up compounding the misery and adding to the pain. Job, he, he says this essentially. He says, or deliver me from the adversary's hand or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless. Teach me and I will be serve, silent. Make me understand. Make me understand. You can hear the desperation, can you? How I have gone astray. How forceful or upright words. What does reproof from you actually reprove? Do you hear what he's saying? Here's Job and he's saying, I needed my friends to comfort me, but you confronted me instead. 
I needed my friends to come in and, and just be present and hug me and tell me that they love me and sit on the back porch in a rocking chair. But instead, you came and you told me what all I had done wrong. But there is nothing in my life that your reproof is actually reproving. Instead, you're just making me feel more alone. You're adding to my pain. It reminds me of a, story, a circumstance I heard that several years back. There was a youth ministry, and in this youth ministry, there was a young man and his pregnant girlfriend. They begin attending, and they, they come to faith in Christ, right? Well, as they come to faith in Christ, they get really connected into the life of this youth ministry, and they, everybody kind of rallies around them, and you got small group leaders that are buying gifts and, you know, like just relationships, and God is doing an incredible work. I'm talking like radical conversion, man. Except it started making people uncomfortable. That there was a, the pastor of this church was uncomfortable with the optics of what it looked like to have someone in this situation active in the youth ministry. And he was concerned with the optics of what it would look like for other parents that we might want to be prospective families and what they would come in and how it might limit the, the growth of the church or how it might lead to discomfort among those that are, are, are hoping that their teenagers live in a different situation than that. And the decree was issued that, that these students should be banned from the student ministry. In other words, it, it was, this is what they've reaped. This is what they've sown. This is what they must reap. They must reap the kind of pain that, that they have sown with unwise decisions. And behind it all, behind it all was insecurity. Behind it all was insecurity. Behind it all was a theology that lacked mystery. And as a result, led to a ministry that lacked mercy. Because you see, that doesn't sound anything like Jesus, does it? That doesn't sound anything like Jesus. In fact, Jesus stayed in, troubles with the, in trouble with the religious establishment because Jesus was always going to the sick that needed a physician. He was always going to the sinner that needed a savior. He was always going to the people that needed redemption. See, what if? What if God had sent that couple into that church into that ministry so that they might become beacons of his redemptive glory there for all the other teenagers to say God is great God is good the gospel is true the story of Job cautions us to stop for just a second and say maybe God's up to something more than what I can see Maybe God is doing something bigger than what I can understand. Maybe God's redemptive purposes are greater than what my little finite, pea-sized brain can begin to process. Maybe God is working in a way that transcends my framework and my worldview and the lens through which I've processed. So, 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 I should humble myself. In fact, that sounds like the kind of friend Jesus is too, doesn't it? That he humbles himself taking the form of a servant, though he was due the crown and glory of heaven itself. What kind of minister are you? Are you one that ministers in humility? Are you willing to have a theology that isn't so neat and isn't so tidy because your security is founded in someone, something, a gospel that is greater than your ability to fully resolve and understand it in your mind?
That brings us to the last thing I want us to see about his friends. That bad, friend, bad friends understand too little. Bad friends understand too little. In, in the book of Job, really we're given three different perspectives on friends of Job. I think there at the end of chapter 2, you get the friend's perspective of their own work, right? That we've come to comfort our friend and to show him sympathy. And so you, you get this perspective from the friends that we have good intentions. We want to help them. I think what you can begin to see there in chapter 6 and in other places throughout these three cycles of dialogue between Job and his friends, Job's perspective that, that his friends have come and they, have, they, they, they don't know what they think they know. That they, don't, that they, they, they haven't processed all that they believe that they've processed. That their understanding isn't as deep as what they think they understand. And now, as we go into chapter 42 in the epilogue, you get what God's perspective is on his friends. How God understands. Now this is important. Because who did Job's friends understand themselves to be speaking on behalf of? They understand themselves to be speaking on behalf of God. They saw themselves as defenders of God. They, they, they saw themselves as arbiters of God's truth, as mediators between God and Job that could call Job to repentance and restore reconciliation with the Lord, that Job might once again know the blessings of God. But listen to what God says. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept the, his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, says it again, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Do you see what happens? They thought they were defending the Lord and instead they were offending the Lord. They thought they were speaking on the Lord's behalf, but instead the Lord comes and he says, you are a poor representative of me in the midst of my servant's suffering. See, he doesn't ever correct what they knew, does he? The Lord doesn't correct what they knew. What they knew was true. This is how the world ordinarily works. Most of the time, if you do the right things, the right ways, with the right intentions, the Lord is pleased to bless that and you'll experience prosperity in your life most of the time. And the Lord does not correct what they know. What he corrects is what they misunderstood. That life isn't that neat and life isn't that clean. And his, his glories are manifestly more mysterious than all of that. Their issue wasn't knowledge. Their issue was understanding. They didn't understand. See, this is a wisdom book. And it's given to us so that we can have a, a holistic, comprehensive picture of what wisdom is. And wisdom is more than knowledge, isn't it? Wisdom isn't just knowing stuff. It's understanding how it actually matters in real life. It's understanding how it actually applies when, when the dark night of the soul arrives, when, when your friend shows up on your doorstep not knowing where to turn or who to go to or how to process it. it. It shows up when your kid is diagnosed with cancer. It shows up when your marriage isn't what you believed it ought to be. It shows up when the job that you've committed your heart and soul to plays out in a second. It isn't just what you know. It isn't just how you've been taught. It isn't just your life experiences. 
is how you understand the sovereignty of God and his intervention in this world. You see, Job's friends should sober us. You'll remember from the beginning that I told you that, that the big question here is the goodness of God, that the thesis of Satan in the book of Job is that nobody loves God for God. They only love God for what God can give to them. They only love God because of the gifts that God can provide them, the wealth and the family and the, and the sense of peace and all of the stuff that, that so many hashtag blessed hash, uh, posts are, are mentioning today. So I want you to think about this. If Job would have repented for something that he did not do, it would have been only so that he could get back what God had given to him. It would have been only so that he could have recaptured his previous life. That is, if Job would have followed the advice and the counsel of these three friends, he actually would have affirmed the thesis of Satan himself and proved that God was only love for what he could give. That these three friends well-intentioned as they thought they were, as God-honoring as they sought to be, actually became the prosecution team for Satan himself of their close friend. That believing they were living for God, they were still doing the work of Satan. So when I ask you this morning, what kind of friend are you? Are you a knowing friend? Are you a knowing friend that has all of the answers? Are you a knowing friend that has a theology without mystery? Are you a knowing friend that, tr- that processes everybody else's suffering through your experiences and your knowledge and your framework? Or are you seeking to be an understanding friend? An understanding friend. You know, there is a time when you have to talk. There's a time in which we need to give counsel to one another. There's a time in which we need to call one another back from sin if we are in sin. But that time is after we understand. After we sit and weep together after we struggle together, after we wrestle with the hard truths of reality together, after we understand. The ending here is too beautiful, too beautiful not to see the sovereign hand of God all the way through a vantage point that we have on this side of the resurrection that Job just flat out didn't have. Do you see what he has? God has these friends that have poorly represented him. God has these friends that have spoken poorly on his behalf and misunderstood him, and God seeks to restore them. But how does he restore them? Four different times, he calls Job my servant. My servant. He says again, my servant. His suffering servant. He goes to him, and he says, offer a sacrifice And have this suffering servant of mine pray on your behalf. And his intercession, his intercession, I will answer and I will make you whole. Does that remind you of another suffering servant that was to come? Another intercessor who would speak to God on our behalf? Another one who would come and join us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our misery, even as we afflict him with our own hammers? That's what Job does for his friends. And it's a picture. It's a picture that a God so sovereign over redemption doesn't have to be fully understood. That you, to be secure, do not have to have a neat and tidy theology. What you have to have is Jesus. What you have to have is Jesus. Let's pray to the Lord together. 
Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.